Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the Book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture and our Lutheran Confession of Faith. On today's show, we're going to continue Article 5 from the epitome of the Formula of Concord, looking at the affirmative statements where we get that wonderful phrase, we believe, teach, and confess with regard to the distinction of the law and the gospel. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Jeff Hemmer, pastor of Bethany Lutheran in Fairview Heights, Illinois. Pastor Hemmer, Hemmer, welcome to Concord Matters. Good afternoon, Pastor Smith. It's great to be with you. All right. So we're going to jump in here in just a second, but uh, picking up from our guest, Pastor Mark Neville, who was with us last week to begin this article, laying out the history on the status of the controversy, and then just kind of talking about why it is important to distinguish law and gospel. He, uh, right at the very end of the show, I asked for his parting thoughts, and he, and he gave the parting thought of assigning homework. Uh, so just so that we pick up on that and, and begin there, he assigned uh, our listeners to read Ezra chapter 9. That's Ezra's prayer. And that's certainly a lot of strong words in there, but also gospel comfort. And uh, he, he asked that we read that, uh, distinguishing the law and the gospel. Where, where's the law at work here in these words, and where's the gospel at work? And, and we also talked about on the show last week how when we um, uh, teach our, our students and children to grow up in the church, that they begin listening for law and gospel and sermons. And we certainly encourage all hearers of sermons to do that as well. Um, if this is something that we ask our people to do, to distinguish between the law and the gospel when they read scripture, when they hear it read, and when they hear it proclaimed to them, I guess a fair question to begin with as we get into the affirmative statements of what we believe, teach, and confess with regard to the law and the gospel and distinguishing it, is this even biblical, this idea that the law and the gospel is present in scripture and that we should be distinguishing it? Well, if you want to know how to interpret Scripture, you'll find no better source for our hermeneutic than the incarnate Word himself. Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you think you have in them eternal life, but these are they that testify about me. And then on the evening of his resurrection, Jesus is risen from the dead, and he's in Luke 24, he's walked with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He opens up to them all the scriptures, and then is revealed to them in the breaking of the bread, and then immediately thereafter disappears from their sight. And next, at the end of Luke 24, we encounter him in the upper room with his apostles. And when there, he does the same thing. He teaches to them out of uh, all the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the writings, and opens up to them how these things reveal that the Christ should suffer and on the third day be raised from the dead. And then he tells them, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name to all nations. That, that is then the content of the scriptures. They all reveal Christ, they all preach Christ, and they proclaim in his name repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's, that's the dichotomy of scripture repentance and forgiveness of sins. Uh, and then as Paul unpacks these things throughout, throughout his treatise in his letter to the Romans, for instance, he carefully distinguishes what repentance means, and that is encapsulated in, in God's work of the law, and then what forgiveness of sins means, and that's encapsulated in God's work of the gospel. So that's, that's where that category, those categories come from. They come from the mouth of the Word who became flesh, 
who for our sake took our sins upon himself, died on the cross, and teaches us the content of the word. And the word includes repentance, his law, and forgiveness, his gospel. I I like how you frame that for us, drawing us, uh, or, or rather starting with Christ and drawing our attention there and, and, and understanding that this is, this is how his own ministry was, was at work. And we think of the Sermon on the Mount commonly comes to my mind, right? You know, that this is exactly what he does. You know, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and, and he, he lays out the law, uh, but then certainly proclaims the gospel quite beautifully, beautiful, beautiful sermon uh, that Jesus himself gives. We see this present also in the uh, sermons of the apostles. And again, as you well laid out for us there, also just kind of permeates his ministry. One of the other things I want to pick up on too, that I think you were, you were getting at, um, reminds me of CFW Walther, first president of Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, in his great work on the law and the gospel. I I think it's in the 11th uh, evening lecture. I can't remember for sure, but he talks about how law gospel distinction, obviously that's what his whole (laughs) lecture series and, and that great work that we still have recorded for us talks about, but he, he also talks about how wisdom is, is precedes the law and the gospel as well, or at least connected in there. And, and you, you picked up on this when you talked about what Jesus does, right? With his uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus, he opens up the scriptures to them, right? He, he gives them the wisdom. This is what God is doing. And then he, uh, or, or has done, uh, as the case may be at times too, right? And then uh, and then, you know, applies the law and the gospel leads to repentance, the preaching of the law and the gospel, which saves and rescues us. And so I think sometimes in our uh, dis, uh, discussion of law and gospel, we leave out that wisdom key uh, uh, connection there as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in the garden, there's there's really no need before the fall. There's no need for the gospel. There's no need for forgiveness of sins. Moreover, when we, when we get into the three different ways that God uses his law, there's really no need for that second function of the law either, and that is to call sinners to repentance, to expose them for their sins. Well, when there's no sin, there's no need for the law to function in that way. It simply doesn't. So before the fall into sin, wisdom and law really go hand in hand. And, and in that sort of what we might say the first function of the law uh, to, to sort of well, now, after the fall to curb sinners in the garden, it's really all just one. It is, it is the wisdom of God. It is the, the common sense way that the world is intended to function. And so, apart from sin, the law is kind of a blueprint for creation. The law is kind of a blueprint for mankind that reveals the way in which creation is intended to function. So there is there's a wisdom inherent in the law as well that, in the way that when Paul preaches the, the fourth commandment and, and draws out of the text, for, as, as Moses records it, in this, if you keep the fourth commandment, honoring your father and your mother, it will go well for you and your days will be long on the earth. Well, that means there's a wisdom inherent in the law that when our lives are ordered according to the law, setting aside for a second the question of whether we could do that or not, uh, when our lives are ordered according to the law, things do go on the whole better for us. We're functioning in in harmony with the order of creation, with how God intended for things to function. Now, sin throws all of that off the rails um, and necessitates the gospel, lest we all perish in our sin. But but before that, wisdom and law really are sort of one one whole package deal. That is that is well said. And and as you said, you know, kind of setting aside for the second whether or not we can actually do that. Of course, sin changes all that. And that is addressed in the affirmative statements here. And so let's just go ahead and jump on in there then. So this is, again, we read on this show from the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. This is the f- epitome of the formula of Concord. Uh, Article 5, the law and the gospel, and we are picking up with the affirmative statements, uh, affirmative statement number one, and this is paragraph two under the article. The pure doctrine of God's word. We believe, teach, and confess that the distinction between the law and the gospel is to be kept in the church with great diligence as a particularly brilliant light. 
By this distinction, according to the admonition of St. Paul, God's word is rightly divided, citing 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. So both law and gospel must be maintained in the church. And I love what what, uh, our confessors here say, that it's a particularly brilliant light. Uh, CFW Walther, again, in his great uh, lecture series, The Law and Gospel, uh, Proper Distinction of the Law and Gospel, he, he references that line, I don't know, at least 100 times. It just keeps coming up again and again. Why is this such a particularly brilliant light that should be maintained in the church? Well, because it is it is for us the, the light, just like Jesus un- opening the scripture, opening the minds of his disciples to the scriptures, law and gospel, and and the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit as as he works by means of law and by means of gospel is really what opens up the scriptures to us. It's it's how we can understand what the scriptures are saying. It's how we can reconcile things in scripture that seem contradictory. It's how we can understand what what the beating heart of scripture is all about. It's how we can understand what what God himself is all about, how he works in us by means of his law and, and by means of his gospel. And so St. Saint, Saint Paul, what's referenced here in 2 Timothy 2, uh, Paul commends Timothy uh, to, to rightly handle the word of God, to use it correctly, and, and that entails being able to use the word of God as the law of God properly when sinners need to be called to repentance and using the gospel when when sinners crushed by the law's accusation need to hear of a God who is at his heart merciful and gracious delighting to forgive sinners so that that distinction being able to to take scripture and to apply it in those two different ways doing the work of God in in the word in the two ways that he works opens up all the scriptures for us, for our life, for our good, uh, and for our being preserved in the Lord's church. I like the strong connection with, again, the, Jesus with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. It really does open up the scriptures to us. That's the particularly brilliant light. And so is it fair then to say that apart from proper distinction of law and gospel, the scriptures remain closed to us? Absolutely. And no matter how, how you will try to use them, if you don't grasp this central distinction, this light that opens everything else up, you will use them incorrectly. You will confuse the two. You'll confuse law and gospel. You'll give those who are repentant, you'll give them more law. And, and those who are, are proud, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll give them the gospel. You'll give them comfort and confidence in the midst of their pride when, when they need to hear law. And and it doesn't really benefit them, right? No, absolutely not. It leads it leads to despair, or it leads to pride, or it leads to a, a feeling like there's no way God could ever love me. Absolute abject despair. All right. So that we may not do that and continue to rightly distinguish, let's push forward into affirmative statement number two. This is paragraph three again of article five from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord. We believe, teach, and confess that the law is properly a divine doctrine, citing Romans 7, verse 12. It teaches what is right and pleasing to God, for it, and it rebukes everything that is sin and contrary to God's will. I'm going to continue on with affirmative statement number three. For this reason, then, everything that rebukes sin is and belongs to the preaching of of the law. All right, so these two affirmative statements talking about the law, I think very much connected together. Uh, we, we see here echoing that the law mirrors God's will, but it, it also terrifies consciences so that they don't take sin lightly. Um, uh, it seems like that this is what we would commonly um, refer to as in the church and teach to our catechumens, um, the three uses, or at least the beginning of the three uses or functions of the law. Sure, absolutely. And if you if you pick up with the argument Paul's making in, in Romans 7 before this verse 12 that's referenced here, Paul will say that I didn't even know what coveting was until the law said, do not covet. And then when the law says, do not covet, what does the sinner do? What does my sinful flesh do? It covets. And, and so the law intensifies sin. Now, that's that's perplexing to us. We think if we want people to be good, 
then we should just tell them what good is, and then they will do it. Well, that's not how that's not how God intends his law to function. And so it functions in, in three distinct ways. One, to all people, it, it functions like a conscience. We tell our catechumens it's like a curb on the side of the road, and so the curb doesn't make anyone a bad—I mean, it doesn't make anyone a good driver— but it might keep you from driving over your neighbor's mailbox. The rumble strips on the side of the interstate, they don't make anyone a good driver, but they might keep you from drifting off the shoulder and, and driving down the embankment. So in this sense, the, the law, like our consciences, sort of keeps a hedge around the, the rampant wickedness that our sinful flesh would incline towards, given free reign over everything. So this, this is just why everyone is not a mass murderer or why cultures across the world generally have similar morals that, that they put into their laws. So everyone agrees that, that killing without cause, for the most part, is wrong. Now, how that plays out in, in every country's legal code varies from place to place, but we can all agree that, that somewhere the fifth commandment has been written on our hearts and tells us that our, our neighbor's life is sacred. So that's the, the first function of the law. Then the second function of the law is exactly what Paul describes in Romans 7, and that's the law that, that makes us worse. So it tells us what God's holy will is, and in the same way Jesus, like you referenced before, in preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have, said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother is a murderer. Jesus intensifies the law. He gets to, to the heart of what the law is intended to convey, and that makes it all the more impossible to keep. In the same way Paul says, as soon as the law said, do not covet, suddenly I'm coveting. Well, the second function of the law exposes our sin, and it gives us no hope. It doesn't give us uh, steps to follow in order to become more righteous. It doesn't give us rungs of a ladder to climb in order that we can ascend to the holiness that God has designed us for. It simply says, you are the opposite of holy, and not only do you sin in the outward letter of the law, but you also sin in the spirit of the law. You think just because you haven't killed anyone today that you've kept the fifth commandment? Sorry, man. Also, anger. Uh, using your words against your neighbor. All of these things are included in the fifth commandment. Or you think just because you haven't committed outward adultery and broken your marriage vows with another person today that you haven't broken the sixth commandment? Jesus says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. So the second function of the law makes us even bigger sinners. Now that's so contrary to, to how we understand. We think if we hang up the Ten Commandments in public places, everyone will behave better. Well, actually, no. Suddenly, if you tell them, do not covet, there's going to be rampant coveting going on. So the law makes us worse sinners, exposes us for who we are. And then the third function of the law, uh, which you'll get to when you have your guests on to discuss the next article in, in the formula, is, is for the Christian only. And it takes us back to that first function of the law and, and really the the origin of the law in the garden, where living according to the law makes life better. The third function of the law is sort of the, the idiot's guide to the Christian life. It tells us what good works now in Christ we are to do, um, what the way our bodies best function, the way our relationships best function, and, and doing these works um, is, is what the law lays out for those who by the gospel, have received the Lord's gift of faith in Christ. So a couple of things that jumped to my mind here. Uh, first, using the metaphor that you were uh, that, that we commonly use with the first function of the law, that it, it's a curb. It doesn't doesn't make a good driver, you said, um, but but it kind of warns us, hey, you're, you're getting out here and it's going to be rough. Uh, I, I remember a situation where 
uh, when I was a younger driver and so forth, um, I, I was down in Texas and, and there was some loose gravel and sand and so forth off of the road. And, and you know, had I stayed within the, the lines there, right, and not driven off, uh, I would have known happiness. That's the wisdom of God's laws we talked about, right? Yeah, it would yeah. be a smooth, smooth drive, right? But then uh, uh, I, I got outside there, right, and, and intensified, right? It got worse because I got on that loose gravel and sand and actually I got stuck and I needed someone to come pull me out. I needed a, a savior, right? Uh, but it definitely got worse for me, and it r- made me realize all the more, hey, guess what? They, they put those lines on the road <laughs> for your good, right? Um, but, uh, you know, I'm just, I, I was kind of raging against the man. I was like, oh, I can drive out there, right? I got a truck except for the, the truck didn't make it, right? <laughs> so then this makes me think, um, so what about the churches then um, that we kind of alluded to earlier that uh, that mingle law and gospel, and and they call gospel what is actually just more preaching of the law, right? You get the five ways to be a better Christian, or the you know, I mean, that, that's just kind of a simple uh, example of that. Uh, but there's lots of ways that this happens, and and so many called evangelical churches uh, that uh, say that they're preaching the gospel. Well, what they're really doing is giving a whole lot more law. That that would seem more dangerous because it just intensifies, right? You're, you're going to be spinning your tires out there. Absolutely. I, I just drove past a, bulletin, uh, a billboard on the way here that says, Real Christians obey Jesus' teaching. And see, this, this is how a, a lot of churches understand or misunderstand the distinction between law and gospel. Gospel, the saving message of Jesus dying for your sins on the cross, is what's given to the unbeliever that brings him into the church. Now, we agree with that to a point, but then thereafter, the gospel is no longer needed. What's needed after that, once you become a Christian, is merely the preaching of how to order your life according to what Jesus tells you to do. And so, those who continue to hear that real Christians obey Jesus' teaching— and then hear Jesus teaching, like we've said before in the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, will come to the conclusion that if I can't stop being angry, and I can't stop lusting, and I can't stop using angry words against people, uh, if I can't stop being greedy in my heart, if I can't stop being covetous, which St. Paul says uh, is, is idolatry, then I, I must not be a real Christian. And so if, if all the Christian gets is more and more law, and the standard is held up to him that if if you want to be a real Christian, you'll simply do what Jesus says, that will drive him absolutely to despair. We will understand things differently, that, that the law is what brings you to the point of needing the gospel. The law will crush you. It will slam every door in your face that you thought was a means of of escape, a means by which you could save yourself and earn God's favor. The law slams all of those so that you have absolutely nothing. That's the second function of the law. It, It accuses, accuses, accuses until it leaves us, really as we were even before the law exposed us to sinners, it leaves us dead without any hope. That's, that's the function of the law when God uses it as a mirror to say, who's the biggest sinner of them all? You are. And then the gospel. And then the gospel says, God doesn't need you to do a single thing. Salvation is not 99.5% God and one half percent you. It is completely God's work. And then you can trust in it absolutely. So if you want to cast that billboard properly, distinguishing between law and gospel, it might say, real Christians trust in Jesus for forgiveness, where even that trust, the Lord's gift of faith, is not a work within us, like I wake up every morning and say, today I'm going to trust Jesus. No, it's, it's the, the work of the Holy Spirit who, who causes us to trust in Jesus. When the law has done its work and we have no, absolutely no way to trust in ourselves, then the gospel says, here is one who does everything for you, who takes his gift of holiness and gives it to you purely as a gift. So that's, that's why we continue to preach both law and gospel to all those people who, who gather in the pews, because they, they will still be contending day by day with their sinful flesh They'll need to hear the preaching of the law, which, which keeps them in the Lord's work of repentance, and then they'll need to be 
reminded over and over again of, of the absolute certainty that we have because salvation is purely God's work alone, of the absolute gospel, Christ, the Lamb of God who bears all the sins of the world, even and especially those sins that he accuses you of when he says, it's not just murder, but it's also anger. It's not just adultery, but it's also lust. All those things, even those inward sins of thought, Jesus has borne, and in his place we receive absolute perfect forgiveness. And that's what the Christian needs to hear day by day. So the Catechism will teach, in this Christian church, he daily and richly, he, the Holy Spirit, we're speaking in the meaning of the third article, he daily and richly forgives my sins and the sins of all believers. The church is not the place where you come to learn how to be good. The church is the place where you come to get forgiveness every day. All right. So I, I'm hearing and here that you can't leave either. And sometimes Lutherans are accused of one or the other of these and other church buses as well, that we leave either the, the law behind at one point, And we, we talked about antinomians and we'll talk about that, especially in the next article, as you, as you said, uh, sometimes Lutherans are accused of that. And, and then we might say that the, the, some other churches, right, might leave the gospel behind. Once they become a Christian, they get in and it's just more law, law, law. And so we can't leave either the law or the gospel behind. Right. And so uh, it continues to be preached. And when the law continues to accuse, 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 right, we continually need the gospel. So then it would seem like that this, and, and you started to talk about this, uh, but it would impact our theology of what it is that we do when we gather together as church, uh, the way that we have our liturgy and we conduct our services. Can you talk a little bit about that, of how law and gospel is at work in the divine service? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just just think about how the church's liturgy, which which we have received, feels so bipolar well, we might say it's paradoxical, because we live with two distinct realities, simultaneously saint and sinner. Now, as God sees things and as he declares things, we are holy and saintly, but he also sees the end. He sees what he has done to us in baptism being absolute. But we live in this day-by-day, minute-by-minute reality where we do still have to contend against our sinful flesh. So what do we do? Immediately upon gathering as the people of God, we say, I am a poor, miserable sinner, and I confess to God all sins. So we come knowing our abject need for God's gift of mercy. Miserable doesn't mean sad. That's how we've come to understand the word. But that miserable from the Latin miserere means to be in need of mercy. So we come to the God who is defines himself as merciful, and we say, we need mercy. And then, how does God respond? He responds with his word of forgiveness. And then and then we enter into his presence, which is itself a, a joyful activity. We enter in by means of the introit, which means the entrance. We enter in, and then we, we get up to the altar. Some of us literally, others of us figuratively, we get up to the altar, the, the place of, of God's nearer presence, and what do we do immediately upon getting there? We say the Kyrie, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. And in most times of the church year, that prayer for mercy is followed by the Gloria in Excelsis, which is the song of the angels at the birth, at the incarnation, and the birth of the Word made flesh, God's answer to our prayer for mercy is that he says, here is how I will be merciful. I will send my son who will bear your sins and who will deliver to you his gift of perfect righteousness. So just in the first 10 minutes of the service, we've gone from law to gospel, law to gospel, from penitence to joy, from consciences stricken and wounded by the law to the pure comfort that comes from outside. And this pattern, this back and forth, continues all the way through the service. We continue to cry out to God for mercy, and he continues to answer our prayers for mercy. He preaches his law to us and drives us to to need him absolutely, and then he preaches his gospel to us and gives us that comfort of, of himself and his presence. And then it all culminates at the end of the service with, with the absolute delivery of the gospel 
by means of feeding us with the very body and blood of Jesus. And then we depart joyfully. We say, now we're ready to die. That's it. Let your servant depart this life in peace. Keep us safe until the resurrection. And then we depart with his name put back upon us in the benediction. It's, 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 it's bipolar, back and forth, all the time, because that's, that's how we live as, as two people in this world that wants to draw us away from God. So we come to God with our sins, and he comes to us with, with his forgiveness. It's really quite beautiful when you distinguish law and gospel properly, which is exactly the point of this article. And so thus far in the affirmative statements, we have law and gospel. We are to rightly distinguish it um, and divide. It should be rightly divided and maintained in the church. And then we've identified what the law is. We're going to have to take a break there and we'll rightly distinguish the gospel then when we come back after this. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, And welcome back to Concord Matters. I'm Pastor Sean Smith with my co-confessor today, Pastor Jeff Hammer. And we were rightly distinguishing between law and gospel. And we're working through the affirmative statements of the epitome of the formula of Concord. So we need law and gospel uh, to be maintained and properly distinguished in the church, rightly divided. And we laid out and 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 distinguish what is the law what are we talking about when we talk about the law um you you beautifully laid out how that that plays out in our life in the church um but we also need to know what is it we're talking about uh specifically when we're talking about the gospel so that we can rightly divide this then and then we'll continue to see how this plays out as we move forward in the affirmative statements so again we're reading from the epitome of the formula of concord article 5 the law and the gospel under the affirmative statements we are going to pick up with paragraph paragraph 5 And this is affirmative statement number four. But the gospel is properly the kind of teaching that shows what a person who has not kept the law and therefore is condemned by it is to believe. It teaches that Christ has paid for and made satisfaction for all sins, citing Romans 5 verse 9. Christ has gained and acquired for an individual without any of his own merit, forgiveness of sins, righteousness that avails before God, an eternal life, citing Romans 5, verse 10. And then continue on with affirmative statement number five. The term gospel is not used in one and the same sense in the Holy Scriptures. That's why this disagreement originally arose. Therefore, we believe, teach, and confess that if the term gospel is understood to mean Christ's entire teaching that he proposed in his ministry, as his apostles did also, this is how it is used in Mark 1, verse 15, Acts 20, verse 21. Then it is correctly said and written that the gospel is a preaching of repentance and of the forgiveness of sins. All right, so affirmative statement number five, we talked a lot about in setting up the controversy. As they said, this is, this is even how it came up. What is it we're talking about when we uh, talk about the law? So there's there's the broad sense and then the narrow sense. And then uh, I, I think kind of backing up then to, to affirmative statement number four, when we're talking about the gospel here, and we want to be very clear on this about what we believe, teach, and confess, we're talking about it in the narrow or strict sense. Yeah, absolutely. And and the words themselves are, right, they have a broad, a broad sense and a narrow sense, but they, they are intended to describe the work of God, these two distinct works of God. And so, Gospel, narrowly speaking, is the work of God to save sinners. Or, as Article 4 says, it is what we are, sinners who are crushed, wounded, broken by the law, what we are to believe. And what we are to believe is that God has saved saved us absolutely. Christ has made 
perfect satisfaction for all of our sins. And, and we reference here Romans 5 twice. And when Paul is speaking in Romans 5, he doesn't, he doesn't use in these verses, he doesn't use the terms law and gospel, but he does the law and he does the gospel. He, he lets the word of God convict of sin, and then he proclaims the gospel that Christ has made full satisfaction for sinners and the gift of righteousness that God gives for the sake of Christ is, is purely a gift, purely because of his goodness, that reconciles us back to the Father. And that's, that's properly and narrowly speaking the function of, of the gospel to save us, to impart to us what sinners need, and that is the forgiveness of sins. All right. So the the gospel then tells us what we must believe to be saved, right? And and at the beginning of the show, we were talking about you you were distinguishing the law as that which preaches to us repentance. And that would be if we if we were to use that in a connection with the gospel, that would be that more broad sense that we're talking about here, right? Repeat that question one more okay. time. So, so at, at the beginning of the show, you talked about the preaching of the law as being uh, that which leads to repentance, right? You talked about Jesus's ministry, repent, right? right. And, and so, but at the same time, there are times in Scripture where repentance is included in the gospel, but that's the more broad sense that we're talking right, about. Right, absolutely. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent uh, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That's, that's the turning away from sin. It, it speaks of the whole work of conversion. And so there, even, even believe the gospel is also a call to repentance, uh, telling the sinner what to do. But the gospel, narrowly speaking, is that comfort that God saves completely by his own work. All right. And then uh, focusing in on uh, the, the, the gospel is that which tells us what we must believe, right, uh, in, in the strict sense, namely that Christ has died for you, risen again, and saved you eternally by his work, right? Um, what, what, is, what is the real purpose and function then of um, defining it so strictly? Well, the function is comfort for the sinner that he he may go to sleep every night not worried about his salvation because he knows that everything depends upon God it is 100% as we said earlier God's work to save sinners there there should be no one who is an insomniac worried at night or any time really about his salvation if everything depends upon God and God's work is always perfect and complete, then my salvation is perfect and complete. And that's what the gospel, narrowly defined, delivers. It delivers pure Jesus, the Savior of sinners, what his name confesses, call his name Jesus, Savior, because he will save his people from their sins. So when the law, narrowly speaking, has accused us of being sinners, then the gospel, narrowly speaking, delivers to us the only Savior of sinners, the only hope for sinners, and with him the forgiveness of sins that he won for us on the cross. I, I think that's the, the really beautiful and comforting thing that we really want to hone in on here. And I probably did a bad job in leading and setting up uh, the question there for you, but thanks for getting exactly where I was going, uh, because I think it relates back to what we we're talking about earlier to churches that, that mingle the law and the gospel, right? And call uh, what is really further preaching of the law gospel. There's no comfort for me. I can't go to sleep at night, right? It, it's a real terror to my conscience, knowing that I continue to look at my life, right? And I may even trust, yeah, Christ has died for me. But if it's up to me to to do something with that, well, then there's just absolutely no comfort for me. Absolutely. And and in a lot of those churches, they're also devoid of, of the sacraments. And the sacraments are the gospel. They are the tangible means by which the forgiveness of sins is delivered. So when my conscience is is struck by the preaching of the law, what do I do? Well, in church, I remember my baptism. It begins with the invocation of God's name, the same name put upon me in baptism. And if God has marked me with his name and promised that in the waters of baptism, 
He forgives my sins. He joins me into the death and resurrection of Jesus. Then I have that because he can't break his promises. And, and when I'm struck by my sins and I go to my pastor and I confess my sins, there's God's word of absolution in the mouth of the man whom he has bound by his vows to be there to speak absolution. And like we said a moment ago, the service culminates in getting to taste forgiveness. It, it is the body and blood of Jesus, not, not to adore, not to contemplate on, but, but to be received into my body, which is at the same time holy and sinful, and to be nourished and fed and strengthened with the gospel in those very tangible means. So that's, that's the essence of the church, and she preaches forgiveness, and she feeds us with forgiveness, and everything is oriented towards sinners receiving forgiveness. And I think that it's really wonderful that you have brought in the sacraments here. Uh, as, as I remember hearing and, and, and learning to believe as I grew up in the church and as I continue to confess um, that the sacraments are the gospel made visible, tangible, and real. It's something I can grab on hold of because I'm a real tangible physical person and and our lord knows that we need these things and and so what a gift that we have which then leads me to another thought and question that you know when we talk about rightly distinguishing law and gospel in terms of the preacher's work right what we do in the pulpit uh or in teaching a bible class and things of that nature right um there there's an idea that sometimes permeates the church that we think, oh, well, this is just for theologians. This is just for pastors. But when you start to bring in the sacraments and you t start to talk about it in that sense and, and talking about what we do when we gather together as the church and the liturgy, as you laid out before our break and then have brought in a connection here, it seems like that this would then be for the lay person as well. The proper distinction of law and gospel is not just for pastors and theologians, right? No, we, we are all in this together. And the reason God gives us preachers is the same reason he sticks these funny-shaped pieces of cartilage on the sides of our heads is so that we can hear the Word of God. And so there's, there's an art for every Christian in being able to distinguish law from gospel, in not hearing the law as, as the proof that he is a real Christian, and not hearing the gospel as a license for him to go out and continue in sin or be prideful about his, his own salvation— and so when we hear the law, what do we do? We seek out forgiveness of sins. And so that's, that's what the sacraments are. They are the, the locatedness of the gospel. If you want the gospel, you find the sacraments, because there God promises to forgive your sins. Beautiful. All right. Well, let's push forward and get a little more of this from the affirmative statements. So this is picking up with paragraph 7, affirmative statement number 6. The law and the gospel are also contrasted with each other. Likewise, also Moses himself as a teacher of the law and Christ as a preacher of the gospel are contrasted with each other, John 1 verse 17. In these cases, we believe, teach, and confess that the gospel is not a preaching of repentance or rebuke, but it is properly nothing other than a preaching of consolation and a joyful message that does not rebuke or terrify. The gospel comforts consciences against the terrors of the law, points only to Christ's merit, and raises them up again by the lovely preaching of God's grace and favor, gained through Christ's merit. All right, so we, we've covered the affirmative statements where th this is the law and this is the gospel, and they're contrasted from one another. And and in, in kind of breaking this down for us, I, I wonder also if you could address here, uh, it says Moses as a teacher of the law and Christ as a preacher of the gospel, maybe touch on there uh, too, you know, the idea that sometimes we tend to think of the Old Testament as only being law and the New Testament as only being gospel. Sure, and and really it's it's just reducing things down. Moses then represents the law, and why? Well, he's the one to whom God gave the Ten Commandments. Does Moses preach gospel? Absolutely. When the people are being bitten by venomous serpents, God delivers a gospel in tangible means to Moses. You'll raise up the bronze serpent on the pole, and everyone who looks at it, uh, here's an argument against iconoclasm, you look at this icon, the serpent on the pole, and you will be saved from the venom 
that the snakes have, have poisoned you with. They're not actually delivered from the snakes, but they are delivered from the effects of, of the venom. So Moses preaches gospel too. Jesus will pick, up, pick that up as well as preaching the gospel of himself. As, the, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus, likewise, is also a preacher of the law, and as we said earlier, a much more severe preacher of the law than, than Moses himself. You have heard that it was said, fill in the blank with a commandment, but I say to you, fill in the blank with the intensification of a commandment. But Jesus is the one who takes his place under the law to redeem us who are under the law. Ever since Moses' proclamation coming down from Mount Sinai, we've all been under the law, unable to fulfill it, and therefore cursed to endure the punishment that the law meets out rightly, God's wrath upon sinners. So, Moses does both, and Jesus does both, but Moses is the icon of the law because he's the one through whom the law is delivered, and Jesus is the icon of the gospel because he's the one through whom forgiveness is delivered. And I, I uh, also want to pick up, I, I think you, you were citing John chapter 3, which we love John 3.16, kind of the gospel in a nutshell, it's commonly called, right? Um, but you, you get a clear sense of the contrasting of this and that the law is preached there as well. I, I once uh, experienced where I read John 3 in its entire context, not just John 3.16 at a funeral. And there are a few people who said, wow, that was a really condemning thing to read at a, at a funeral. And it was like, Huh, right. Why was it condemning? And we'll come back to this in, in affirmative statement number eight if we make it to it on today's show, uh, because, you know, is, is Christ's death law or gospel, right? It's, a, it's an important question that we'll wrestle with. But but they're clearly an example, too. The, the law is contained in both, and the gospel is contained in both. But I like how you frame that for us, and, and you even use the iconoclasm, the right? You know, that, uh, you know, this temptation of some uh, within Christianity to say, you know, just get rid of all icons, you know, no statues, no no wearing of crucifixes and things like that. Uh, no, this is helpful to us, right? We look to it and, and we believe the words and promises of God given to us in the gospel. Absolutely. All right. Uh, getting here then on uh, forward, uh, maybe we'll make it to eight because let's, let's deal with seven. Uh, picking up with paragraph eight, however. Concerning the revelation of sin, Moses's veil hangs, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 16, before the eyes of all people, as long as they hear the bare preaching of the law and nothing about Christ. Therefore, they do not learn from the law to see their sins correctly. They either become bold hypocrites who swell with the opinion of their own righteousness, like the Pharisees, citing Matthew 23, or they despair like Judas, citing Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5. Therefore, Christ takes the law into his hands and explains it spiritually, Matthew 5, 21 through 48, Romans 7, verse 14. In this way, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all sinners, citing Romans 1, verse 18, so that they see how great it is. In this way, they are directed back to the law, and then they first learn from it to know their sins correctly, a knowledge that Moses never could have forced out of them. According to this, the preaching of the suffering and death of Christ, the Son of God, is a serious and terrifying proclamation and declaration of God's wrath. By such preaching, God, I'm sorry, by such preaching, people are first led into the law correctly after Moses' veil has been removed from them. Then they understand correctly for the first time what great things God requires of us in his law, none of which we can keep. Therefore, they know we are to seek all our righteousness in Christ. All right, so there's this veil, Moses as the icon of the law, the one whom the law is given through. There's this veil that hangs over, and we've kind of touched on some of this a little bit, but go ahead and break it down here, what we're saying in this point. So, well, what we said earlier about the law slamming every door in your face, if, if there's no way out, if all you're brought to is despair, then you will grasp onto and cling to whatever hope you could find in the law. And the options there really are, I keep the law, and so therefore God must esteem me as righteous. Uh, and in order to believe that, you've got to water down the law. Or God is not such a, such a severe judge that he will actually give me what my sins deserve. Or just absolute abject despair that, that there is no hope for me. So this, any of these points, the devil would be glad to bring us to. And, and in the preaching of the law, the devil and the Holy Spirit agree. They both want to accuse us of sin and say that our sins 
remove us completely from the goodness of God. We are absolutely other from who God is as holy and who he has called us to be as holy people. But only, only when Christ is preached is, the veil, is this veil removed. And there is, there is another option, and that is all these things can be absolutely true. We have completely sinned. Sinfulness is, is inescapable. There's nothing about the law that we could keep. And yet there is hope for salvation. And that hope is the complete inversion of what the law has been proclaiming to us. The law says, do, do, do. And the gospel says, it's all done. Everything is done for you. You receive it completely as a gift without any single work on your part. And so that's what, that's what the, the formula means here in that the gospel removes the veil. It gives us that option so that we can hear the law in all of its fullness, in all of its terrifying our consciences, because we know that in Christ, in our baptism, we have the pledge of a good conscience before God, as St. Peter says. That's, that's how baptism saves us, for instance. It gives us good consciences so that we can say, in Christ, I keep the law, all of it, perfectly. And so the law then with the veil, Moses' veil removed, the law then no longer terrifies the Christian because he knows that he has all of the law's perfect commandments. He keeps them perfectly in Christ. So the gospel alone removes that veil. And, and we need to be clear here then, too, as, as you even hit on earlier, it's not like we can escape the law. Because you talked about, you know, you can look in all of the societies around the world, right? And and this law is clearly written into the creation, or as we might say from a biblical sense, you know, written onto our hearts, right? Um, as Romans talks about. And so, you know, this is, this is going to be present in every society, right? And it's just going to accuse, 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 right? And there's only one comfort available to us, and that's the gospel. This uh, makes me think of a, a listener question that we received uh, to, to handle on this show when we got to it. Uh, so I'm just going to go ahead and read this question and let you respond to it. So it says, we talk about natural law and about law being written on our hearts, but does point number seven of the affirmative theses mean to say that a person cannot properly understand the law apart from the scriptures? Yes, that's that's what it means, because the the law in that and natural law is kind of like the first function of the law. It's it's the the remnant of the law chiseled into our hearts all the way back to to the garden, that that always accuses us of sin, but we'll never get it precisely. We'll never know exactly simply by by studying creation. We'll never know exactly what God's will is for us. And then that's not the only way that the law functions, as we spoke about earlier. It also functions, moreover, in our lives to, to accuse us of sin and, and to cause us to need Christ. Now, natural law is good, and, and when Christians engage with, with even non-Christians in, in the public square, we will often speak about natural law, consciences, the order of creation, in the same way Paul spoke about the fourth commandment we mentioned earlier, if you keep any of the commandments, your life will go better for you. Now, that doesn't, that's not salvation, right? Living long on the earth, your, your life going well for you, if you keep the fourth commandment, does not imply salvation. And really, when, when we let the fourth commandment have its way with us, there's absolutely no way to keep it. But the more closely our lives are ordered according to the fourth or any commandment, the slightly better things seem to go for us as a whole. Now, there may be someone who keeps the law, you know, better than someone else, but for whom his life does not go that well. But as a general rule, right, it's the hard cases that prove the law. So as a general rule, Paul says, quoting Moses, quoting God, your life goes better when it's ordered according to the commandments. And so we, we say as, as Christians in society, as good citizens, if you want your society to function well, the law of God is, is a good way to order your society. It doesn't save anyone, but it makes us all a little bit better. It makes neighborhoods more harmonious. It makes families safer when there's, you know, life is ordered according to the fifth and the sixth commandment, and you've got a father and a mother together raising children. All these things help society, and that's, that's the function of natural law that Christians can bring into that conversation. 
And I, and I like how you, you frame that for us, too, that, you know, we'll know the law, but we'll only fully know the law when we come to see it as God's will for us, that it may go well for us. That's beautiful. All right. Uh, well, then, I'm sorry, this, this pops another question in my head that then um, could be connected with this listener question that we got. Uh, what about the gospel, then? What is the only way that we know the gospel? Or is there only, do we know the gospel naturally? No, no, the gospel is is contrary to logic, it's contrary to nature, it's contrary to common sense. That's what Paul says, uh, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but it is the, the logic and the wisdom of God, which is counter to our logic. Law is logical. Do good, good happens to you. Do bad, bad happens to you. Karma makes sense, but gospel is radically counter to our logic. So the only place where we can know the gospel is in the Lord's church. And this, this is why we've said earlier that the church is the place where forgiveness is delivered. And that is, that is her chief aim in everything that she does is to deliver the comfort of forgiveness to sinners, to be the, the only place in the whole world where you can receive the gospel. All right. And sometimes the, the response will come back, well, you know, I see a tree out there and it reminds me that Christ was crucified on a tree. Well, that's not really natural revelation, right? That, that, that's just, you know, an icon at work like you were talking about earlier. Sure, sure, a- absolutely. And that makes sense then because you've heard the gospel in the context of, of the preaching of the gospel, which is the, the church's daily work. So because you've heard Christ crucified on a tree, then a tree can be a reminder of, uh, of the crucifixion of Jesus. The same is true, Luther said, every time you wash your face, you remember your baptism. Well... It's baptism that opens the door for water to preach the gospel to you. It's not the other way around. Very well said. Well, then let's get to the affirmative state uh, theses number eight here, uh, which is all about Christ on the cross. Yet as long as all, sorry, yet as long as all this, namely Christ's suffering and death, proclaims God's wrath and terrifies a person, it is still not properly the preaching of the gospel remains the preaching of Moses and the law. And it is, therefore, an alien work of Christ. Passing through this teaching, Christ arrives at his proper office, that is, to preach grace, console, and give life, which is properly the preaching of the gospel. All right, so uh, we received this listener question also that I'd like you to address. Can you offer a simple explanation of the alien work of Christ? What's that uh, going on here? Sure. Alien means foreign. So it means what is not according to his nature. So the nature of Christ, the nature of God, is to be merciful. Think of how he identifies himself throughout the Old Testament. You are a God slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in mercy, the God who brought his people out of slavery. It always speaks to his merciful work. And, and to say that he is slow to anger is to confess that anger doesn't come naturally to him. Wrath is not his normal way of interacting with, with his creation, with his world. And so Christ is the, the absolute representation of God's proper work, his, his MO, his way of engaging his creation, and that is to be merciful. In fact, to take all of his anger and and his wrath and his punishment for sinners and to give it to Christ instead. So, wrath is alien to God. He doesn't want to be angry with sinners. He doesn't want to send them to hell. He doesn't want to punish them for their sins. And the proof of that is in the death of Jesus on the cross, God puts all of his wrath onto Christ. Now, Article 8 says that saying Jesus died on the cross is sort of neither law nor gospel until it gets applied. And if you just hear Jesus died, like, like Peter does in his Pentecost sermon, you killed Jesus. Well, that's, that's the crucifixion of Jesus preached as absolute law. But then at the end, it becomes the inversion. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, forgiveness is only available because of the death of Jesus on the cross. So Jesus died on the cross is an historical statement, but it, it will be... In, in the hands and mouth of a preacher, either law or gospel, 
and the proper work of Christ moving from the wrath that God pours out on him on the cross becomes the forgiveness that God won and dispenses in his sacraments purely his gospel, which is, as we've said before, available only in the church. That's, that's the proper work of Christ. What he loves to be doing is forgiving sinners the gospel. Excellently confessed there by Pastor Jeff Hemmer. Thank you so much for joining us for Concord Matters today. I'd love to just continue this conversation for hours and hours. The, the, the proper distinction of law and gospel, such a beautiful thing for the church to have and to maintain. Thank you for faithfully confessing it for us today. If you have a question or comment that you would like to leave for us to address the next time we convene for Concord, you can leave us a message at phone by phone, 314-996-1542, email kfuo at kfuo.org. Find us on social media at KFUO Radio. Thank you for stopping by today, and until next time, keep confessing, church. <laughs>